You are in for a treat. A very special CUSE conversation with 103-year-old alumna Ruth Colvin. They call me a Pollyanna. <laughs> and I know it. And I'm an old Pollyanna. But you know, you don't want to be with people who are always negative. So they, they laugh at me. But um, I think there's hope in the world. Stick around to hear where Ruth finds that hope and where we can find it too. I'm Chris Villardi, Director of Digital Engagement and Communications in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement and a 1995 Syracuse grad. Our guest today is a 1959 Syracuse grad, Ruth Colvin, who earned an honorary doctorate from the university in 1984. She is the founder of Literacy Volunteers of America, which is now known as Pro-Literacy, a recipient of a Presidential Medal of Freedom, a member of the National Women's Hall of Fame, and she just published her memoir, My Travels Through Life, Love, and Literacy. You'll find a link to the book in the description. Her mantra, or one of them anyway, is lifelong learning, and she has lived it, beginning with a college journey that was indirect, to say the least. Eventually, that journey led to Syracuse University and well beyond. My father died, you know, in 1929. He was only 38. I'm the oldest of five children, and um, but my mother and father had saved for me to go to the University of Illinois. So when I was 17, I graduated from high school. My mother and I went to my uncle Frank, who was executive of my father's estate. They didn't make rules in those days. And I said, it's time for Ruthie to go to the University of Illinois. Uncle Frank listened to us, shook his head and said, no, we're saving it for the boys. That was my first inkling that this was a man's world. I had no choice, so I had to go to this tiny junior college, Thornton Junior College, 50 of us in a high school. There wasn't even a building of its own. Someone said, well, who are your professors? You didn't have a good start. I said, the professors at, at University of Chicago, some of them were moonlighting and looking for extra work and they came out to our little tiny junior college. So we, I had top professionals, even in that little group. So that is what opened my life to a whole new thing. And then later on, as I say, when I graduated from there, I wanted to go on to the university. Yeah. My uncle would still not let me go. He said, the only thing I'm going to give you is you can go to business college. That's nothing I wanted to do. I had no interest in it at all. Again, I have no choice. Went to business college. But if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to be the best. So I did shorthand, typing, law, all the rest of this stuff. I went out on one interview, one only, and I got the job as secretary to five attorneys. And that's where I learned that estates were settled. This is why I say it's lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. From then, I went on to Northwestern University. But by that time, Bob and I were engaged and uh, war was in Europe. And we, just, we were gonna get married and I had 30 hours to go yet to get my degree. But I thought, you know, I can, I can pick those 30s up hours anytime, no. So we got married in 1940, went to Seattle, Washington for the first year and a half. And then we were sent to Syracuse, which I'd never heard of. I thought it was the suburb of New York City. <laughs> we come here, and that's where I was in my 40s when I went to Syracuse University and asked if I could get my things here and get a degree. And they said, yes. 
And that's why I got my undergraduate degree through all this turmoil, but good training from SU, never dreaming that they'd even give me an honorary doctorate years later. We'll hear more about that honorary degree a little later on, and we'll hear about the significance of Ruth's lifelong connection to Syracuse University throughout. As Ruth explains, SU came to play an instrumental role in the early days of Literacy Volunteers, an organization she founded because she was motivated to make a difference. Well, in 1960, U.S. Census came out in the local paper headline and it said there were 11,055 functional illiterates in my city of Syracuse, New York. I couldn't believe it. Who were they? Why couldn't they read? What was being done? Nothing. Hmm. So I had a coffee, inviting members of the Board of Education, the president of Rotary and other nonprofits, and one woman president from Church Women United. Well, they were as shocked as I was, but no one offered to do anything except the one woman. Her name was Myra Eady, president of Church Women United, who invited me to speak to her group. She represented the women of 90 churches. Well, they voted unanimously to sponsor a literacy project, but only if I would take charge. Well, that was the start of Literacy Volunteers of America. But Ruth wasn't a trained teacher. She knew that. And although she and her team of volunteers had good intentions, they started losing instructors and students within a year. That's when I did what I should have done earlier. I called Syracuse University. That took a lot of courage on my part to do. But I talked to Dr. Frank Green, who I'd never met. He was head of their reading clinic. Well, I explained my situation to Dr. Green. Well, he had heard of me because of our good PR and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. He finally said he knew the reason. Why, I said, because your methods were 30 years behind times. Huh. I was the guest. See, I didn't know anything about this. <laughs> Would you help me? Yes, he said, come in Saturday and I'll have you work with a dozen PhD reading specialists. I was scared. I went to Syracuse University and I was amazed. It was like the sky was opening up. First, everything should be learner-centered. This is something I didn't know. Mm. Find what the students want. Yes, some phonics are good, but English is not totally a phonetic language. (laughs) It's a pattern language with many sight words and put emphasis on comprehension. Oh, all this was so new to me. I I couldn't believe it. I was writing like mad. And then the name Dr. Jane Root kept coming up. Here I had 12 PhD people. I didn't need any more. But the name kept coming up. You know, God works in mysterious ways. Oh, my goodness. So I called her. She comes in strong. But I told her what I was going to do. And I said, I'm going to adapt my whole problem, rewrite the training for everything. When I'm done, would you look at it and review it for me? She said, oh, no, no, no. That's the wrong way to do it. If you want me to help you, let me help you at the beginning. Well, I thought, who have I got here? We met for coffee. Within 15 minutes, we knew we were for each other. (laughs) We worked together for years. She and I wrote together the first edition of Tudor, which now is in its eighth edition. Ruth gives Syracuse University credit for putting her on the right track and helping every step of the way. 
Syracuse gave these well-intentioned volunteers the guidance, credibility, and professional skills needed to grow to become a national and ultimately international organization. Ruth also understood the importance of knowing how to accept feedback and criticism. Listening is so important. And this is why throughout my 100 plus years, I have learned so much from others. That was one reason I wrote my book. If I have learned things, at least let me share my mistakes. Let me share I learn from my successes as well as from my failures. But if people can learn from me, that's a little way I can say thank you because um, I, I could not have done it alone and I could have not have done it with the background, limited background that I had had. Ruth's passion for lifelong learning is something she shared with her husband, Bob, and something that took them around the world. And wherever she went, she found opportunities to share the importance of literacy. And as we traveled, you know, around the world, Bob is the one that kept saying, because he had been the top salesman, he was in sales in industrial chemicals for 25 years. And so that, that was what he was helping small business in other countries. But he kept saying, let's retire early. He retired at 58. He had limited income, but enough to get by. And we were invited around the world because he kept saying, there's so much more to learn. It's lifelong learning. You've got, we've got to keep going. We've only gotten a little bit of it. So going around the world, we learn. That's why I wrote Off the Beaten Path. I don't know if you read that one. That's 93 stories of international experiences that touched our lives. I want to ask you, as you've traveled the world, what, what stands out as your favorite place and why? Well, uh, I don't think I have a favorite place anymore. It's always the one, the last one I've been to or the next one I would go, was going to. Uh, I think the most important thing, most important people and most important places were the students. When I learned how little opportunities they had, how poor they were, and yet how hard they were working and how creative they were. I was impressed by, by the students more than anything else, even though I met, as you know, many, many leaders all around the country. But uh, the students were the important ones. And I could see if they could get this basic education and go on the next step further, they could be the future leaders of our world. Among the places Ruth visited, South Africa. Her first visit there was eye-opening and impactful. And while Ruth may have traveled on a mission to teach, she came away learning an awful lot. It was during apartheid and we were invited. I didn't know much about apartheid. Uh, you know, you, we didn't have TV, we didn't have radios, we didn't have anything in those days. And so when I went, I didn't know that it was illegal to meet with black and white people together. And of course, that was what I was invited to do by the Council of Churches. So when I got there, uh, we decided we quietly go into a rural, small rural church, one, one or two at a time, which we do. But evidently, the apartheid government had heard that I was, I was there. So I got a call from them. And I was amazed. They said they would like Commandant Pogetier head of their army that was teaching 
the black parts of the of the of their army, which is a big part, uh, if he could come into the training. Well, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, I I was scared, so I went to Bishop Tutu at the time and told him about it. And he said, oh my goodness, the apartheid government has, they have ransacked us. They have done everything to us. They have been terrible. I said, well, what should I do? He stopped. I think he prayed a little. And then he said, I want you to take him in. I said, take him in? He said, yes. So I took him in. Now he, he came not in uniform, but everybody knew who he was. And several came up to me and said, Mrs. Colvin, do you know what you're doing? I said, no, I don't, but I have no choice. So we got going. And at the end, what I do is I make them demonstrate because I know I have to leave and they are on their own, demonstrate if they got what I said. And so I, I have to have a, a student and a tutor do every one of the parts. So I chose Gugu Gugu, who was a rebel black young man, as the teacher. And as a student, I took Commandant Pogetier, the white man. Well, they did a beautiful job. Everybody clapped. And what it, what it taught me was that when people have a common goal, they forget color. They forget backgrounds. They forget other things. And that's one way of having peace in the world. And that's something that resonates with Ruth today as much as it has at any time since her visit. It resonates today because, let's face it, 2020 has been a heck of a year. I have never seen anything like this one. Never have seen anything. Now, my friends, as we sit and talk with our masks, I see for distances, and I read a lot of biographies. Mm -hmm. I'm finding that even in biographies and in listening to early people's stories, you can see why their attitudes are a little different than mine. And rather than disagreeing with them, I can understand it and hope they can understand me. I have to ask you, looking at 2020 the way it's been, what is it that gives you hope? What gives me hope? Well, through my long life, I've learned so much. I've learned from disasters. Now we're going through a devastating time right now. And so many of our handling it in creative ways and that, that's good. They're learning, which things they didn't have to do before, that people are helping each other. They didn't used to do that before. They'd go on and do their own thing. We've learned on Zoom and on Skype and everything else, which we didn't have before. I think we're facing racism, which we did not do, as well as COVID-19 problems. And I think by doing that, it's a positive thing. We're going to learn something. It's going to be, it's going to be a new world. People can do their work at home, which you never thought they could do before. It's going to be a new world out there. And I think if we keep an open mind, we'll see there are going to be some positive things that come out of it. Not many, but there will be some. <laughs> but but that's just it. Is is not is not looking at all of the bad things, but looking at how we're adapting, how we're learning and how we're figuring out, okay, we've See, been dealt- a, They call me a Pollyanna <laughs> and I know it and I'm an old Pollyanna, but you know, you don't want to be with people who are always negative. So they, they laugh at me, but um, I think there's hope in the world.
Ruth's optimism and energy are infectious. And obviously, when you're speaking with someone who's 103, you want to know the secrets to a long life. She admits that some of it is probably luck, but she's also very intentional about focusing on four important aspects of her well-being, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Physical, swimming, bicycling, skiing. Uh, so I guess I've always done that. See, up until the epidemic, I've been going to the gym three times a week, working on 20 machines, 20 reps on each one. Very good. And people say, isn't it nice you like to exercise? I said, who said I like to? <laughs> I do. Right now, I can't go to the gym, of course. So what do I do? I do my exercises at home in the morning. I don't like to, but I do it. I walk down our long block and back every day. I use a cane now because I don't want to fall. And my iPhone keeps steps. You know how many steps I do a day? 2,000. Well, that's not bad for a 103-year-old. Not bad at all. But I still, I still play, do play golf. So that's physical. The reason for physical, as I do my research, is the more physical you do, the more it goes to your brain. The blood goes to your brain, and that helps us. So that helps me with my mind. Physical. Then mental, what do I have to do? You have to keep learning. It is lifelong learning, and as soon as you stop, see many, many people as they retire, many of my friends as they retire, they say, um, I've done well. I've given my whole life to this. I'm entitled now to sit and do nothing, and I don't have to learn new things. That's when they go downhill. So I do Sudoku. I do reading. I always have library books, and I'm, I always have four or five here. So that's physical, mental, and emotional. Emotional is your attitude. Uh, forgiveness for helping people. And I'm saying there, it's a positive mind. You've got to keep a positive mind in all of this. And the fourth one is spiritual. And you have no control how you were brought up, if you were whatever you were brought up in a religion or no religion or anything else. But if you will learn to respect other people's religions, but also help each other. Uh, in, in my early days, when I was dating Bob, there was a popular song way before your time called Three Little Words. And that was a very popular song. And the three little words were, I love you, which we thought were wonderful. Mm -hmm. But as I look back, I find all the three little words that are in your vocabulary. And see, even in those, those four things on mine, physical, I would say the three little words are never stop moving. And mental, an open mind. Emotional, a positive attitude. Spiritual, help one another. And I've got a whole bunch of other ones that have helped me through life. And they learn that I'm 103 and still writing and still thinking and still playing golf. And they look at me and they say, well, you're, you're just a normal person. Well, if Ruth can do it, I can do it. And what it does, it encourages people to say, in fact, one of the gals I played with golf yesterday, a very close friend, at the end, one of the gals said, if Ruth can do it, I can do it. And Betsy said to me, she said, hmm, that means I've got 30 years to live. I said, you have 30 years to live, so plan on it. So it encourages people anyhow. Well, and, and this this sets up perfectly what, what I wanted to ask you as kind of the, the final question is, what does it mean to you to be a part of this Syracuse University family? 
Well, I've been honored with my uh, first honorary doctorate there, which I didn't expect. In fact, my son got his PhD from MIT, and I was so pleased with, with, with him and proud of him. And when I got my first honorary doctorate from Syracuse University, he was very proud of me. And I said, Terry, how long did it take you to get yours? He said, it took me five years. I said, it took me 20 years. <laughs> and I said, has it made a difference in your life? Oh, yes. I said, well, it has mine too. So I appreciated that. And I'm so thankful to, my, to all my SU friends. And for th living right here to see SU adapting to everything that goes on and always with a positive way. Uh, those of you that I know, many of my friends are teaching at the university and so forth. And I'm proud. Chancellor and his wife, Ruth, came to my 100th birthday party. That's an honor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm pleased that that you're interested in the alums to let them know that I'm thankful for all the things that they have done, not only to me, but to other people. And I hope this will help them too. Well, we, we want, we want to have you around as long as possible because uh, you, there's so much you can continue to teach us, which is, uh, which is fantastic. Well, I'm not dumb. I know my age and I know from day to day, week to week, year to year, but I didn't think I'd make it this long. So who knows? I'll be here all the time for you. And I hope someday when the, when the COVID-19 is over, we can actually meet. I would love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you, Ruth. All right. We'll give it a try. I am looking forward to that. Well, we hope you enjoyed this Q's conversation with Ruth Colvin. What an inspiration. If Ruth can do it, we can do it. I'm Chris Bellardi. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay well, and go Orange.